Acts chapter 2, young ones in the church, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in your pew, and we're going to be on page 522. I'd like to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 and follow along with us as I read. And does everyone have sermon notes? Did did everyone get a copy of the sermon notes today? And what about the, the kids? Young ones, did you guys get a copy of... What I prepared for you? Raise your hand, young ones, if you don't have one. You don't have one? You do. All right. Everybody's prepared. Well, let us uh, turn to Acts chapter 2 and hear the word of the Lord. Verses 1 through 13 is what I'm going to read. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come... They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven or divided tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speaking in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia and Pontus in Asia, Pergia and Paphlia in Egypt and in parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we confess that thou art the one and the true and the living God. And we ask of you, Father, from the treasures of your wisdom, would you, Lord, send a ray of brightness During our time together, Lord, that would disperse the remaining corruption of sin that remains in us, that would disperse, O Lord, remaining ignorances, Lord, of what we know of you, of what we know to be true in your word. Father, your church is gathered here, and Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit and that you would give us, Lord, a thirst, and also a skill of learning more of you and what you have revealed in your word. I pray, O Father, before our gathering that you would give us all clearness, keenness of mind. Lord, you would grant to us the ability to listen, to retain, to remember, Father, I pray that you would guide the delivery of this sermon. I pray, God, that you would direct its course, its progress. And, O Spirit of God, we look to you, and we ask you to bring it to an effectual and a blessed end. Use your word, we pray, O Spirit of God. We ask that you would grow us, that you would nurture us, that you would prepare us, to be the people in the age 
in which you have placed us for the glory of thy name. We give you thanks, O Father, in the name of your Son, the Blessed One, to whom be all glory and honor and dominion forever. Amen. Well, we come to Acts chapter 2. And the more I was meditating on this chapter through the week, it dawned on me that I really haven't truly appreciated the monumental significance of Acts chapter 2 in my Bible. Think with me for a moment, going back to our Old Testament reading in the book of Genesis, how I said how there in Genesis chapter 10, God was establishing a salvific framework for us. He was beginning to develop in our understanding nations who would later come into play as explaining and manifesting His grace and redemption. Friends, all throughout the Bible, you get the big picture, book, big picture look that there's these epic events that happen. We witnessed one with the flood in our Old Testament reading of Genesis. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had the opportunity to look at and consider the resurrection of Christ and remember the ascension of Christ. And we sought and we attempted to amplify the ascension of Christ in our understandings. It seems as though we don't talk about it enough sometimes as Christians. When we come to Acts chapter 2, you could almost see the Bible as one of those heart monitors. Uh, we have a, a great new grandma and grandpa with us today, and I'm sure they were at the hospital during the delivery of their little one, and there was, you, you, you heard a heart monitor probably be hooked up to the mother, right? And on those heart monitors, when there's some uh, seismic activity, right, if I could use it like that phrase like that, there is a spike on the monitor. Something's happening. Something's going on. That's what Acts chapter 2 is. In this big picture of redemptive history, in this big plan of God, Acts chapter 2 is one of the most unique, significant, epic moments in all of history. So this requires for us a little bit of recap and a, and a, and a prolonged introduction. We just can't rush into Acts chapter 2 this morning, beloved. I'm sorry, we just can't do it. Because what happens here in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost is when the airplane kind of takes off. Uh, many of you have been in an airplane and you, you get your seat and you're sitting in your seat and you're like, when is this thing going to start taxiing? And then finally it starts taxiing and it gets to the runway. You hear the engines rev up. Then you feel, right, the momentum going and going and going. And then the wind, what, picks up that plane. And you feel it, don't you? You feel the elevation. There's no turning back. You're not getting out of that plane. Well, I guess you could, but it would be really foolish to do that, right? But, but you're, you're lifted off and you're going somewhere. And that's what Acts chapter 2 is. It's the lifting off of a new beginning in God's plan. It's a lifting off. It's a new beginning in God's revelation of His plan. Now, you guys know, coming into Acts chapter 2, what has been going on in Acts chapter 1. There was the resurrected Christ for 40 days discipling his apostles and his early disciples. Do you remember the significant lessons of Christ's discipleship and teachings that we get from Scripture? There's not a whole lot of detail, but there is two things. We know from the Gospel of Luke that one of the things Jesus was concerned about was teaching in his resurrected ministry the disciples that beginning with Moses and the prophets, they all pointed toward him, right? So he was concerned with giving them a lens by which they could look at and they could understand the scriptures they had at that time. He was very concerned about that for what was about to happen. But secondly, there was something else that he was teaching them. In Acts chapter 1, beginning with verses 3 through 8, we looked at that. He was concerned in clarifying for them, preparing them, and better equipping them with the nature of the kingdom that they were anticipating was going to be restored. Now, this all had an effect on them. The effect was what? We saw it last week. The effect was there was great confidence in the apostles in what Jesus had prophesied before to them about the eschatological, fancy word for meaning end times, 
It prepared for them a great confidence to receive the promises that Jesus said as yes and true. How did we know that? Well, we remembered that because these band of uh, apostles actually obeyed Jesus in going back to Jerusalem instead of scanting off to Galilee where it would have been safe. And you remember we asked the question, why in the world would you go back to Jerusalem, which was the epic center of hostility toward your Savior where he was just executed? And no doubt if you opened up your lips or you identified with him in any way, you too would be executed. It's because they had during that 40 days a blessed assurance that what Christ said and what he promised was happening. He was there in resurrected form. He was reassuring them that they were still going to be in some way leaders and elders in this new kingdom. That they were going to be leaders amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. Things were beginning to connect for them. And so they go back and we saw last week in their trust and in their obedience. What were they doing, beloved? They were praying as they were waiting. They were studying the Word of God, meditating on it. Peter was. That's why he stood up and he interpreted the Psalms the way he did. But we notice, and we landed on this point coming into Acts chapter 2, the effect was great confidence and expectation, heightened expectation. Because you remember how they replaced Judas Iscariot, the traitor, with, uh, well, they didn't, I'm sorry. They come to the Lord. Remember that? They came to the Lord and they asked the Lord, please replace Judas, with, with a seat amongst the apostles of the twelve. We have to have twelve. And we all ask the question, really? You're concerned about this administrative business right now with all this stuff going on? You really got to get a new guy into the apostolate right now? Why are you doing this? You remember why? Because they were highly expecting, highly anticipating that the new dawn of this present age that Jesus had promised was about to begin. We have to have 12 because Jesus said there would be 12 that would sit upon the 12 thrones in his seat of glory, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. I like, as you see in your notes, how um, New Testament professor G.K. Bill says it. He captures this anticipatory excitement of the apostles this way. He says, the apostles were breathing in eschatological air. Now, that word's going to keep coming up a lot. And it's just a, a big word that means dealing with end time things, latter day things. He says the apostles were breathing in eschatological air. And thus, as this eschatological air would have filled their lungs, it would have supplied oxygen to their brains that would have been highly expecting the dawn of the new kingdom, the new creation, the promised beginning of the new era that Christ said would come. I think to fully appreciate Bill's point, we must acknowledge that a prophetical promise of this new creation, of this new dawn, it permeated all of the teachings of the Old Testament. And so it's not surprising that these promises, these prophecies of this new era, this new kingdom, it began to establish in the understanding of God's people all through the Old Testament, an anticipated event that would come, an anticipated event that would be accompanied with a great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Young ones, look at your handout that I gave you. You see that, that, that kind of chart that shows all of the Old Testament prophets? Beginning with Amos, ending with Malachi, Every single one of them were planting and also fertilizing as if it were and pointing forward to what we are about to read was fulfilled. This great outpouring of God's Spirit which we begin the beginning of a new age, a new kingdom. According to the prophet Isaiah who's on that chart, all the citizens of this new era all the citizens of this new kingdom would have God's law written upon their heart by the power of the Spirit. During this new era that is about to be ushered in in Acts chapter 2, the prophets all categorized it as being blessings that would transcend and overflow the borders of ethnic Israel, the Jews, 
out unto the Gentiles, to every tribe, and to every nation. And as I mentioned before, what was uniquely, specifically, you could say, a point of interest to the apostles who were going to be learning about much all throughout the book of Acts and has something very special happen to them today. Jesus, as you see in your notes, promised them in Matthew 19, 28, that when he was sitting in his throne of glory, they would in some way be sitting upon 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. All of that helps us to appreciate coming into Acts chapter 2 today that this was the end time framework. This was the eschatological framework that the apostles, the state they were in when they were gathered in one accord, waiting patiently for the promise to be fulfilled. All of that energy, all of that anticipation is what we come into in Acts chapter 2. They would have been fully aware, and in fact, they were fully anticipating that a new dawn was about to begin in this present age. That's the title of today's message. As you see, I want us to operate under the significance of what we're coming into in Acts chapter 2, that it is ushering in a new dawn in the present age. So how should we look at the text or how should we navigate through it? Well, I think that if we really want to highlight the significance of it being a new era, a new dawn in redemptive history, this cataclysmic event, this epic event, I believe the best way to do it is just to allow the description of the details of the event to be our roadmap. Because each one of these details have with them a very significant theological point to make. And so when we consider and we allow those theological points to be amplified in the details and connect them with passages, we begin to see, yes, with the apostles, there was something new happening. There was an epic event occurring at this time. There was a new era being ushered in. I think when we do this, beloved, it adds richness. It adds depth and practical appreciation from us here some 2,000 years later with how where we're at started. How with what you experience in the conversion, not in the exact same way, we'll talk about that, but what you possess through the blessed spirit, calling upon the Messiah, loving his ways, loving his laws. Beloved, it's all starting right here. It's all connecting right here. So let's jump into this and let's allow the day to be the first point that we want to look at in the significance of this new dawn or this new era, the day. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Let's deal with this in two ways. The day has theological significance, but it also had practical significance. The theological significance first, it's the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost literally means the 50th day. 50 days in the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was one of three significant feasts of Old Testament Jews. They would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, depending on who you study or who you read, many believe that there was two to three million Jews cram-packed like sardines in Jerusalem during this time. So inseparable from the Feast of Weeks, inseparable from the day of Pentecost, is the entire 50 days of celebration. They had special food. They had commemorative events, special prayers that they would pray, etc., etc. And it's important for us to note at this point that the Jews just didn't in this 50-day celebration come up with their own inventions of how they were going to worship God. No, no, no. God told them in Leviticus 23 specifically how he wanted to be worshipped in the Feast of Weeks. Now, I think this is just important in passing to say because God's worship, the worship we offer up to him in praise, it is to be regulated. Uh, we don't as men uh, just have the warrant uh, or the, uh, you could say, authority to lift up to God worship as figments of our own imagination. We don't have that, that right, you could say. Only the Creator God has that right. 
And he regulated through Moses in Leviticus 23 how he wanted them to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. One such way he records in verses 10 and 11. He says this, When ye come into the land which I give unto you, speaking to Moses, and you shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. When I read that, I thought, being a Midwestern boy, I thought about corn. Uh, some of you have had to de-tassel corn. You take the husk off the corn. Imagine the sheaf or the husk, and, and you wave it before the Lord. That's kind of how God told them to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which culminated and ended on the day of Pentecost after 50 days. The significance of this action is that it gave opportunity for God's people to come before Him as the Sovereign One and recognize that without His blessing, their crops, their hard work, all their toil is risking to be barren. It, it, it risks to be fruitless. It risks to be dead. He needed to be acknowledged as the one that would bring the increase, the one that would give the blessing, the one that would give the fruitful harvest. Now, isn't it interesting, since we're considering the day, understanding the significance it had to Old Testament Israel, as you see in your notes, isn't it fitting that at the close, after 50 days of this Feast of Weeks, which was designed to acknowledge God as the one who grants the harvest, that God would on this day, this Old Testament Jewish ceremonial day called Pentecost, he would begin a new harvest. A harvest consisting of eternal souls. I think that the significance of this day in connection with the day of Pentecost, in connection with the Feast of the Weeks, in connection with all of the centuries of the Jews traveling to Jerusalem is tied up in the detail of verse 1. Look at your Bibles. Where the, inspired, or where the inspired writer Luke says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now, those of you who have a modern translation, you don't have that. Your Bible will say, when the day of Pentecost arrived. When the day of Pentecost had come. But look at your notes. This is important. The transliteration of the Texas Receptus captures this phrase fully come and it's very helpful because when you see in the Greek what it means this simple rao I emphasize that because yesterday my daughter she come into the house at dinner time she came out and studied tell me it was time for dinner and she coming to the house she goes mom I know Greek simple rao well simple rao you see the significance that that word carries with it what's what's it carry with it to fill up completely the whole of the ship filled up as if it were with water. Now, beloved, do you remember last week what we observed in Peter's proclamation of interpreting Psalms the way he did when we restated our belief as Bible believers of the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God? What that encompassed was the idea that God superintends every word every inspired word, and accepting this and fully appreciating the overall eschatological context and energy that's surrounding verse number one and coming into what's about to happen, I would contend, beloved, that the older translation fully come, it better equips us to rightly interpret the Spirit's choice of this word. Soon play ra'o. Because it's signifying that the Feast of the Week celebration is about to come to its full measure of purpose. As you see in your notes from Colossians chapter 2, of course this is correct, beloved. The feast was never intended to be perpetual. This feast or any other feast, Paul is inspired by the Spirit, clearly taught us that this feast and others like it were but what, beloved? A shadow. But what was the substance, Brother Scott? Christ. What was the substance, church? 
The substance was the fulfillment coming at an eschatological later date through an outpouring of the Spirit just as Amos all the way up to Malachi was pointing toward and Jesus in his resurrected ministry said they were all talking about me and guess what? The kingdom was about to be rolled out and inaugurated. Buckle up. Prepare. The new dawn is coming. Allowing Paul's inspired redemptive historical rules of interpretation to help guide us, church. We rightly divide the word of truth when we conclude that the Holy Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost, the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks. It constituted the once and all for fulfillment of the meaning of centuries old annual pilgrimage through the Passover and the Feast of Weeks to Jerusalem. All of that was being fulfilled full to the brim on this day. In other words, God just didn't randomly pick a day. I think, uh, as you see Gordon Kitty in your notes, he observes the harmony, the balance, the symmetry of divine revelation, what God's showing us on the day, the theological significance of the day. It implies a profound theological significance for the mighty acts of God. Or as Pastor Sam Walden says, any revelation that God gives, it's intentional. And so the day was intentional why God picked it. A new dawn was about to come upon the present human age on the day of Pentecost, fulfilling what he said would happen. And afterwards, nothing would ever again be the same. There wasn't wasn't only just theological significance of why God picked this day. There was also practical, as you see in your sermon notes. There would have been maximum publicity. Did you hear what I said? A lot of the, the scholars, they tell us that there would have been two to three million people packed in Jerusalem. I think of the most holy wisdom of God and, and, and arranging providentially that, that situation where all of these Jews and the proselytes, the text says, those who want to become Jews, those who want to practice the Jewish religion, they all would be filtering in Jerusalem on that day. And so when this happens... He's got the audience all right there. All of these Jews gathered from the different dispersions, beginning with the Assyrian captivity, uh, continuing on with the Babylonian captivity. They're all, you could say, home. They're all regathered at home there in Jerusalem. Maximum publicity. But not only that, in God's wisdom. Did you notice the text said that these were Jews who were devout men? Devout men. Now, thankfully, and Brother Grizz, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I don't have to make these long pilgrimage to these religious holy sites in order to get closer to God. Amen? There's still some religions that practice this. I think Jesus squashes all of this. We'll get to this later on in the book of Acts when he says to the Samaritan woman, you know, there comes a day where you, not, you will not worship on this mountain or that mountain. Right? And he's, getting, he's amplifying that point of what we're seeing established here today. And I'm thankful for that. But on this time, there was the devout Jews coming to the pilgrimage. Not all Jews, but devout Jews. So if you're a devout Jew, you're studying your Torah. You're studying the prophets. In other words, God has already got a prepared people to receive the fulfillment of the eschatological message that's about to occur. And the D, as we'll see next week, it happens. One of the, the biggest blessings, influx of new converts into the church that the church's history has ever seen. So there was maximum publicity. There was prepared hearts, heightened expectations in the hearts and minds of these Jews. But let us now move on to verses 2 and 3 and observe that not only did the day, but also the signs that accompanied the Spirit's outpouring convey that there was something significant happening. There was a new dawn, a new era occurring. We move down into verses 2 and 3 to the signs of the Spirit and its coming. Notice verse 2. Suddenly, there came this first sign. A sound from heaven. As of a rushing mighty, some of your modern translations will say violent wind. I like that translation, a violent wind. And immediately we observe that the first sign that's accompanying with this extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit, it is not wind itself, is it? But rather, it's the sound of violent wind. As you see in your notes, the theologian John Gill also observes this. He says, it was not a wind, but like one. And the noise it made was like a rushing noise of a strong and boisterous 
sound. I was talking to one of the brothers before church, and I said, you know, uh, being a retired pastor, he said, you know, he says, the book of Acts, one thing good about it is it gives you a lot of coloring pages for the kids because there's a lot of activity, historical scenes that could be depicted in illustration. And I said, yeah, I said, I had a hard time trying to find a page or, or an accompaniment for the children to the sermon today of depicting the Pentecost scene without wind. They, they all want to emphasize wind, but the emphasis isn't wind. The emphasis is the sound. And beloved, during my studies this week, I kept noticing how a majority of the Bible commentators unanimously uh, want to make some sort of relevant connection with wind, because wind's mentioned, with the fact that wind's talked about other places in the Bible. And I kid you not, I, 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 I read it, and I would read it, and the guy over here is quoting Ezekiel 37. And we all know that passage well, where the Lord tells the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind. And then the wind is supposed to be, metaphorically, the breath of God who moves upon the dead bones and the army is risen up. Amen. And then most of them would point to John 3.8, where Jesus in that intimate encounter with Nicodemus, he's talking with Nicodemus. And you remember, he parallels the Spirit's activity with the wind. No man knows where it goes. It moves wherever it will, right? Almost all the commentators wanted to do that. They wanted to draw a connection between the word and the mention of wind was somehow meaning it's teaching us this. And all the while, all week, I kept feeling like, as the one brother says oftentimes, that dog just don't hunt. I, I, I felt like it was forced. I felt like it was artificial. I felt like they're, you know, God's mentioning wind, so we got to just create somehow this, you know, find wind under a rock somewhere that it means, you know, the Spirit of God. However, the more I contemplated this, and the brother who was in the, the, the office yesterday, I come bursting out of the study when it finally dawned on me. I began to reconsider something. The uniqueness of this event, remember the, the, the seismic chart I was talking about? Not the seismic chart, the, the heart monitor. Remember I was talking about that? Remember Acts is a boom. What's another, I thought, what's another seismic event that would have been boom on the map of redemptive history? that shared the same observations that we have operating in verse number 2 and 3. What's another event? And it dawned on me. Mount Sinai. On the top of Mount Sinai, God's presence was manifestly there in a unique way, only done one time in redemptive history. Today, we're reading something that God only does in a unique way one time in redemptive history. But also operating on Mount Sinai, as you see in your notes, was not just God's presence, but also audible sound. Track with me here. Look, at, look in your sermon notes to Acts 19, 18, 19. Let's go back to Mount Sinai, which I'm saying is a good parallel to bring along this passage to just give us a better understanding of what happened that day. We're trying to just get a picture with the apostles of what happened. You know the scene well, I'm sure. Here we, we, we read that at Mount Sinai, it was all together on a smoke. Because why? Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. We'll make mention of that in a moment. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And here it is. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, notice, it waxed louder and louder. Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. John Gill observes, this sounding was a preparation by God given to the law, giving in the law to Israel, and was one that was continued even in its tone, but it waxed louder and louder. Or he's working with the Hebrew here, he says, it grew in exceeding strength, strengthening itself more and more. It went on, he says, we ought to understand it as a high pitch until it was exceeding vehement and strong and so impressive and scarce that Moses could not bear it. That's the scene that really ought to be emphasized is the sound of a violent wind. Did it sound like a tornado? We all live in the Midwest here, right? How many of you have been at the coming of a thunderstorm or in the middle of a thunderstorm or 
I hope no one's been in the middle of a tornado. I'd like to hear your story if you survived it. But, you know, just that, that, that captivating noise. As you see in your notes, what's being described here in this noise is a, a theophany. Just as the theophany on Mount Sinai, God's divine presence coming upon the mountain. And he, and, he, and he demonstrates his presence in the sound and with these visual effects. In this theophany that we're reading about in Acts chapter 2, the extraordinary divine presence of God's Spirit is accompanied with this attention-captivating sound that would have arrested all of their cognitive faculties. So brother, I'm trying to unpack the scene that if we were there, the sound would have happened, and I believe, beloved, that like Moses, they would have been somewhat paralyzed. Somewhat paralyzed because something so unique is happening, their human little peeny brains can't relate, can't connect it to anything else they've ever experienced. They would have been highly anticipating something's about to happen. Are we about to get caught up like Elisha? Or what, what's about to happen? That's the scene that's occurring here with the sound, you know, whatever it was. I believe that by allowing Mount Sinai to parallel our interpretations of this theophany, it seems more like the emphasis ought to be placed on the sound as manifesting God's divine presence amongst them than anything with the wind. He's manipulating audible sound waves to create an experience that would have conveyed the idea that after this, things will not be the same. This is a new dawn. This is the beginning of something entirely new. Moving on to verse 3, we learn that the next sign is described as, you see in your Bibles, cloven or divided tongues of fire. Now this sign, of course, isn't lacking any other connections in Scripture. In fact, in almost all of the, the, the theonomy appearances, young ones, remember what I said about theonomy? What, what, what's that word? A theophany, not theonomy. Theophanies. What they are is they're ways in which God reveals to human creatures that He is there. And so when we look back to the Old Testament and we see how God manifested His glory in these theophanies, in these appearances, we see many times they were accompanied with fire. You have in your sermon notes a list of them. The burning bush, when Yahweh called to Moses out of the midst of the bush and told him that he heard the afflictions of his people. In the pillar of fire during Israel's wilderness journey, he was there as a pillar of fire, denoting to them in that theophany that I'm present and I'm going to provide protection for you. We just read about Mount Sinai that was accompanied with thunder and lightning and fiery flames as if it were. You see, fourthly, Ezekiel, seeing God's divine throne as a chariot of, of, of fire, ceaseless fire, Ezekiel says, in the cloud. And then there was Psalm 18, the theophany in David's most tender moment when he was afflicted and he needed help, and he come before God to help rescue him from his enemies. And the scene there is when God shows up to rescue him, all of the earth glows in fire. Just as a great and holy fire is associated in all of these Old Testament theophanies, so we see here, beloved, that fire in the form of divided tongues, visually accompanied in a significant way, this event. Now, there can be little doubt, I hope you would agree with me, that when the appearance of the fire came, if they weren't just so enamored with what was transpiring, perhaps something that would have calmed their souls would have been some of them would have recalled the teachings of John that said, I baptize you with water, but what did John say? There will be one that will come that will baptize you in the Spirit and with fire. I know it's sanctified speculation, but perhaps when they're there, I mean, imagine if you were there and that was happening. You could have almost fainted dead. That's the scene. I really believe that's the scene of what's happening. You read some of the old Jewish guys, Gil points out, and, 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 they, and they want to describe this uh, thing as um, uh, a, a spirit of God is like a fragrance floating in and resting in the air, you know. 
so forth and so on. Oh, it didn't happen like that. There was awe. The whole descending of God upon this place to consecrate it in the ushering of this new air was intended to create wonder, reverence, an awe-aspiring event. Indeed, at this point of the Pentecost event, the apostles were without a, dare, without a doubt aware that a new dawn had come in this latter days in which they existed. Well, having appreciated the significance of the day, having understood some uniqueness of these signs, let's now look at verses 4 through 11 and observe the gift that came with the coming of the Spirit, the gift that was associated with the Spirit's coming, ushering in this new dawn. And I want to do this by asking just two questions and considering the gift. Who received the gift and what was the gift? Well, notice in your Bibles, first of all, in verse number four, we notice that they all received the Spirit. It says verbatim, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. We're going to interact a little bit more as we go into Acts, not today, but we're going to interact more with an understanding of the filling of the Spirit, the work and the activity of the Spirit, so forth and so on in the life of a believer. But today, let's just notice that the Spirit of the gift was given to everyone. And wishing to cultivate a richer and deeper appreciation for how significant this eschatological event is, notice with me, beloved, that it wasn't just one of them that received the Spirit. It wasn't just two of them. The significance of the eschatological event is that they all received the Spirit. Every single one of them received the Spirit. Why is this significant? Because in the later day, new creation that was prophesied that here in Acts 2 is being inaugurated before our very reading eyes, Isaiah said they all will know the Lord. Not just Moses, not just Isaiah, not just Ezekiel, not just the special uh, God's chosen prophets to teach and direct the people. They all will know the Lord. This wasn't always the case, beloved. It wasn't always the case. In fact, Moses laments back in Numbers eleven twenty nine when he expresses his desire after people were murmuring and complaining because he has the Spirit. They don't, right? So they're, they're looking with the eyes of the flesh. Moses is seeing everything through the eyes of the spirits, even though he was a man. And what did Moses express? He said, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. Oh, that the Lord would put his spirit in or on all of them. You see, he had even this desire that all of God's people would have the spirit. All of God's people would understand his redemptive plan. All of God's people would understand what he's doing and leading us out of Egypt. All of God's people would appreciate and come with eyes of faith to offer the sacrifice. All of God's people would appreciate God's abiding presence with us and stop the murmuring and the complaining. Oh, but other prophets, as you see in your notes, they pointed to this era they pointed to this time when God would satisfy the desires of Moses and other like-minded prophets who were lamenting, Lord, when will you raise and restore up your people to where they all know you and your law is written upon their heart and they with eyes, longing eyes, are looking for the Messiah. Isaiah said it succinctly in Isaiah 31, 33-34. I will, God says, put my law in their inward hearts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will give their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In this new era, in this establishing and inaugurating of this new kingdom, the citizens of God, they will have a love for His Messiah and His law. When it is opened up before them, they will not stiff-neck it and put their arm up and say, I refuse it, I won't have it over me. No, no, no. They won't be like the Old Testament Israel. They will bow, won't they, in humble submission to the authority of God's Word. No longer would the Spirit only be granted to a few chosen people, but in the end time new kingdom of Christ, the law of God will be upon the part of all of its citizens. Praise be to God for the faithfulness that He demonstrates. I've heard many people that, um, this isn't in my notes, but, it, but it's worth saying, they don't like the idea 
that many of the Old Testament prophecies, as I'm seeking to demonstrate for you, are being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. They don't like to amplify the theological significance of these fulfillments. Um, they want us to believe that by saying or by teaching or by recognizing or allowing the Old Testament to interpret the Old Testament, they would say that you're going to present a God who's not faithful to the modern day Jew. You're going to present a God who doesn't keep his word. And we'll get into this more, especially next week when Peter stands up. It's not my words, it's Peter's beloved is inspired by the Spirit. He said, what Joel was saying, it's happening now, right? There's no future fulfillment of Joel unless you're just not satisfied with the day of Pentecost and the first fulfillment. <laughs> I don't, I'm not raising my hand in here and saying that the day of Pentecost wasn't good enough. I'm going to accept and say, yes and amen, God, you know what you're doing. I got the big picture. I think the apostles that day with the sound, right, and the cloven tongues of fire, they got the big picture, and we see as demonstrated in their life and their calling, they moved out as the church with an idea that there was a new dawn. We're a new people. We have the salvific new message of Christ, and they went out and changed the world, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Well, it's nonsense to get back to something that's not even in my notes to consider that all of this is being fulfilled at this day and night age because it doesn't demonstrate God's not faithful. It demonstrates, oh, yes, he is faithful. He said, he said it through Isaiah. He said it through Jeremiah. Friends, he was repeating and renunciating this promise being fulfilled, and it is fulfilled. He is faithful. He is so faithful. Notice in the sign that not only did they all receive the Spirit, considering the significance in its theological significance, fulfilling latter day events, but they also all were given utterance. They were all gifted with the ability, we see here, to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that's important. I didn't check on the modern translations how they rendered that. But as the Spirit gave them utterance. How many of you in here, when you've read this or you've watched a dramatization of it, perhaps a movie or listened to an audio drama of it? I know our kids have the audio dramas. It's one of your favorite ones. I think you remember saying, I'm looking at Nolan. He's probably listened to it 50 times in the book of Acts. Um, it's the best one because it's just so exciting, so much going on. But uh, how many times have you ever pictured that this happens and they all just are kind of talking and start babbling and start, you know what I mean, giving or start talking a different language all at the same time? No. As the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. As the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So perhaps you would get up as, the, as Peter and you would give an utterance. You would give a message. You would, praise the, you would praise God. You would give a message concerning what everything was being fulfilled. Uh, kids, you have in your handouts the picture. The reason and the purpose of the Holy Ghost was to give them this utterance, the, the, the inspired writer of John tells us. It was, the whole purpose of the Spirit of God was to give life to this message that God wanted them to take to the ends of the world, right? And then after Peter was done, Andrew would stand up and he would give an utterance, so forth and so on. It's just an important detail to help us flesh out kind of how the scene looks. Because, because of the influence of an unhealthy Pentecostalism, we kind of get this messed up idea of what this event looked like. This denotes to us, brothers and sisters, that they weren't randomly speaking all out of turn and out of order. But as the Holy Spirit hovering over them, and you could use your sanctified imagination of how that looks. Some guys want us to believe it was pillars of fire and other things. But as the Spirit was hovering over them, the Spirit would give them a message. And the message was a proclamation of the fulfillment of Christ and everything that Christ had prophesied. They began to preach it. They began to teach it. They were all filled with the Spirit. And they were all given this gift of tongues. But most importantly, and for our applicatory purposes today, they were all given a message, brother. You're given a message. I'm given a message. The message of the good works of God through Christ are you're not unique to me. They're not unique to any office bearer in the church. It's unique to every spirit-filled individual. Carry the message forward. Share it with your co-workers. Start immediately, of course, in the evangelizing of your home, right? 
<laughs> and then where's the next place? Those in the highways and the byways, you're around. You take the message that Christ has given you through the endowment of His Spirit within your soul, and you can't help but not talk about Him. You cannot help but proclaim His goodness. We know from Acts 1.8, do we not, beloved, that that's exactly why the Spirit came? Jesus told them, you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you in order to be witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the other parts of the earth. Well, what was the gift? Well, it's, it's a shame, but I even got to tell you. But the, but the gift was what? Their ability, supernatural ability, to speak a language that they never went to school for. They never grew up in a home speaking any of these languages. Um, they were able to speak with other tongues. Notice, though, I want to do this. I want to start doing, laying the groundwork for this because we're going to get into this gift of tongues later, much in the book of Acts. But notice here, just launching off into our understanding of this revelation of God, giving of tongues here in our lexicon. It literally means a tongue, a language, or a dialect used by a particular people distinct from other nations. It was a discernible, intelligible, translatable form of communication that sounds and syllables meant words and they could dictate it and write it down. You can't get away from that. In Acts 2, that was the gift that was supernaturally given to the apostles. Now here's a question I thought when I was studying this. Have you ever wondered, why did God choose to accompany the pouring out of His Spirit with this gift? Why did He do that? Calvin's helpful here. He points out the fact that if these were all Jews who were dispersed, they still would have known their native tongue. They still would have spoken in an Aramaic form of Hebrew. Better yet, uh, many of you know English is the most dominant uh, worldwide language. Pastor Eugene, of course, always likes to remind us that Spanish is second. But they all would have been, most of them would have been familiar with Koine Greek. Why? are they given specific languages which would have been most plausibly their secondary language of these other nations that they were dispersed in? Why? Here's where the theological significance comes for. As we're trying to amplify the theme of the sermon, a new dawn has occurred. Because the giving of this ability, the supernatural ability to speak in other languages from all of these nations, it was a covenant sign given to God as a manifestation to be a judgment upon the covenant-breaking Jews. Pastor Todd, where did you get all of that? The Apostle Paul. Look at your sermon notes. To this end, the Apostle Paul, over in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, he quotes Isaiah 28. Now, beloved, remember Isaiah. He was at his wit's end with his countrymen who said they loved God with their lips, but not with their hearts. And he was constantly pouring out, there's going to be covenant judgment upon you. Turn to the God in repentance and he'll receive you and there'll be great restoration someday. And in the midst and the context of his ministry, his prophetical ministry, God through Isaiah says this. You see it in your notes. This is Isaiah 28, which Paul picks up later in 1 Corinthians in his context in the New Testament we're reading about today. Through men of strange tongues, and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. He's referring to his covenant people, the Jews. But even then, they will not listen to me. The significance, the theological significance of this new dawn that is occurring here in the giving of this latter-day blessing and fulfillment of Isaiah 28 gives us all sober reason to pause and to consider that within 10, some say 15 years, after God fulfills this gift, this eschatological, end-time, revelatory gift of Jews who have never learned these different dialects to speak in these different dialects, a bunch of fishermen from Galilee, within 10 to 15 years, God judges the reprobate physical Israel. 70 AD comes. And the entire Jewish existence is wiped out. Do you see now the theological significance of why the tongues? In other words, it wasn't like God was saying this. 
hey, you know what? Yeah, sound. That would get them excited. That would help them to understand something serious happening. Oh, you know what? In fire, I've always used fire as a theophany in the past, so I'll make sure I include some fire. But what's something else I could give these guys in order to make them have a little bit of a good time before they're hated, chased, hunted down, and martyred? Because that's ultimately what's going to happen to the apostles. I know what. I'll give them the gift of tons and they can go out and just talk to everybody. That would kind of make them feel good. No. He was fulfilling what he said he would do. That's why he gave them the gift of tongues. In other words, piggybacking off of Calvin, they could have spoken to their fellow Jews in either Aramaic or Koine Greek, but God specifically gives them the ability to have multiple divided tongues representing all the known nations at that time. A new dawn in the present age is beginning I'm going to skip over the aspect of my notes here of this being a revelatory gift. What we mean there, God is revealing something. We just saw prophetically how he's revealing something, right? And we'll deal with that more later, why tongues should not be seen as something that continues, because when it does, it's a revelation from God supernaturally, which then causes tension if it ever comes in contradiction with the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. We'll look at that later. Hebrews chapter 1, I would go there, verses 1 and 2, assures us that God, while at sundry times, even in this time, speaking in tongues, and in diverse manners, spake in times past unto the prophets, he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, through the Spirit, in the canon of the Word of God. And beloved, that's what's given to us for all of our faith and all of our practice. Well, there's one more thing with the gift. Who, who received it? What was it? And now we need to come into our last heading. Thank you for your patience and consider on this significant day, the multitude, the multitude, because they're the ones who received the gift, the hearing of the gift. Um, the apostles received it. They're the ones that benefited from hearing it. As I said before, as we move into the text here, and we, we consider now the multitude from all of these nations. It was estimated there's two to three million proselytes there. And I want us to consider the eschatological significance of the multitude now. Because remember the theme of the sermon. It's a new dawn. It's a, the, the, a new age is coming into this present age. It's bursting forth. It can't be held back. Consider this. They all are identified in our text as Jews. From all across the then known nations. Secondly, they all had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The promised place where all of these things would happen. They're all there. And afterwards, they would go back to the nations with the message of Christ and his gospel. So they would go back into their other nations and they would be a blessing. The ones that are converted, the ones who are brought into Christ through the power of the Spirit. They would go back with the gospel, wouldn't they? And they would take the blessings of the gospel back to the nation from which they came. So what's the significance? You see it in your notes. First here, we see a regathering of the Jews from the four corners of the world. Isaiah said this would happen in Isaiah chapter 11. There is a regathering here of the dispersed Jews, beginning with Assyria, then Babylonian, and they're uh, out, out everywhere in the highways and byways of this modern-day Roman, or the then modern-day Roman Greco, Greco world. They have come together to Jerusalem for this feast, and God's going to pour out His Spirit upon them. And then those who come to faith in Christ become what of Christ? Disciples of Christ. How does Paul also identify the disciples of Christ? As the sons of Abraham. Paul des describes the, the disciples of Christ, the Christians, new converts into Christ. He describes them as the seed of Christ, doesn't he? Do you remember in Genesis twenty-two eighteen? What God promised Abraham? He said to Abraham, In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. There are many people today that still believe that this somehow is a blessing promised somehow to the physical descendants of Abraham, even though they can't ever prove it. You'll never be able to do that. I'm helping you to see with the lens of, of interpretation that the apostles would have been wearing leading up to Acts chapter 2 
the events of Acts chapter 2 and definitely accompany the sermon that Peter, Peter preaches next Lord's Day, they were wearing these hermeneutical lens. They saw themselves as the restored true Israel. They saw themselves as leaders in this true Israel. And we will see them next Lord's Day moving out in that eschatological understanding, going to bless all the nations of the world. God is faithful, friends. God is faithful. Well, in conclusion, let us connect now briefly us with Acts chapter 2. We said it in our introductory message to Acts. There's a lot of things descriptive in Acts, but not prescriptive. Um, the, 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 the coming of the Spirit and power with sound and, and flames of fire was a once and all event. But that doesn't mean the Spirit doesn't come anymore. The Spirit almost absolutely does come. You're a testimony to that by being here today if you've truly repented and come to, the, to Christ in faith. You're an example of a working of the Spirit. And so... All we need to do is to look back and say there were epic times where God was moving forward redemptive history. And this one time is significant in that redemptive history because it began the latter days in which you and I begin. And then immediately you're going to think, because that term has been so abused, the latter days, oh, Pastor Doug, are you about to say there's about to be wars and rumors of wars and all of this stuff? What I'm trying to tell you is get the big picture. The big picture is, is that the present age, it's got two chapters. You're in that second chapter. You remember when the disciples in Acts chapter 1 tried to pin down Jesus and ask Him, is this going to happen any day now? And He told them, the seasons and the times are not for you. The power belongs in God's hands, but this point out of the Spirit is going to come any day hence. He didn't want them to get caught up in all the times, right? So it doesn't do us, as by way of application, to get caught up whether the Son... And the dawn of this new era is at high noon or whether it's just half noon or three quarters noon about to be dawn, we have a mission. We have the Spirit of God. And He has given us all a message. And He hasn't consummated this thing yet. So brothers and sisters, what are we to be doing? Taking the Gospel of Christ unto the ends of the earth making His name renowned among the earth, teaching everyone His ways, just as He has taught us His ways through His Spirit and in His Word. We said it last week with the effort in Malaysia, 90% of the Minarians, they are Buddhist. 90%. Work needs to be done over there. Amen? Amen. How about India? The epic hot spot for uh, Muslim apologists come from India. Talk to Jay Smith. He's the most profound Muslim apologist. And he will tell you, being a missionary kid in uh, India, northern India, he said, when you encounter a Muslim from India, and they want to talk with you, and they want to debate, they got a Christian Bible in their hands. He said, you talk to a Muslim from one of the other Arab countries, they want to talk about George Bush and politics. He said, the militant apologist who know the Christian faith and who want to pick it away. They're in India. And the Lord's given us an opportunity with Pastor Sukumar to bring the gospel to India. Who's going to go? Who's going to leave the comfortabilities of the Western culture and things that we have? Right? Brothers, I'm not going to quench the Spirit. I'm not going to shave off the corners of that call. I would just let the Spirit move where the Spirit needs to move upon the hearts of God's people. And you, and you, respond to the call. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, Lord, we thank You. We thank You for preserving Your Word. We thank You for giving it to us as Your church. We thank You that in the riches of Your wisdom, you have executed your sovereign providence in artful skill and a demonstration of profound divine wisdom in exactly how you have unfolded your redemptive plan and are still unfolding your redemptive plan.
Father, give us searching hearts, I pray. Give us studious minds as your disciples. And Father, would you work in us a spirit of wonder, of interest, and of anticipation of what you will do in and through us. We learned from you and your word that the ascended Christ in his seat of glory is still doing and still teaching. We have received your spirit, which we, Father, give you thanks for. Your spirit has manifested to us the reality of who Christ is and the calling that he has placed on each one of our lives. And we pray now, Father, in the weakness of our flesh, O God of mercy, tender God of understanding the frailty of who we are, would you give us, Father, we pray, strength, Would you, Lord, give us the fire and the zeal that we will see demonstrated by the patriarchs of this grand and new covenant, the apostles. We thank you, Father, for this day that we've been able to gather in your holy and precious name. We give you glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.